0: At the end of the school year in 1997, Judith Tonsing wrote in one of her sixth grade student report cards, these words. It's been a joy to have you in class. Keep up the good work. Invite me to your Harvard graduation. <laughs> 21 years later, the student did just that. Kristen Gilmer, 33. Kept and treasured the note from her former sixth grade teacher, saying those powerful lessons encouraged her to study public health. So when Gilmer graduated from Harvard as a doctor of public health in May 2018, she made sure that Tonesing was there to share the big day with her. And she said, and I quote, she lit a fire in me. Most of us, I hope, could point to someone who has done just that has lit a fire in us who perhaps had bigger dreams than we even had for ourselves on what we could do. Uh, The Apostle Paul was like that for the Ephesian elders. We're in the midst of this series of marching orders for church leaders. Now, imagine this scene. You've had the Apostle Paul as your pastor, for three years. And he's left and he's now saying to you, now it's your job, you're gonna follow me. How would you like to follow the apostle Paul to lead a church? That is quite daunting. The premier apostle. I mean, Paul had trained them for this moment, right? Even though it was hard to say goodbye and perhaps even harder, to envision doing ministry without them. So let's stand and take a look at this passage. Acts 20, verses 28 through 38. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful because of, uh, because of all, uh, because of the word he had spoken. And they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Watch out for people who distort and distract. We saw last week Paul laying out the danger of certain people who have agendas from within the church and those who are from without who seek to come in and do damage within a church. And he tells these Ephesian leaders, as a result, be alert, be watchful, be sober-minded and awake, especially when it comes to others teaching, leading, and having influence. Because there are people who will distort the truth. And certainly the Lion's share of that means the, the truth of the word of God or or the gospel or or a certain approach to the Christian life that is not biblical. But there's also people who distort the truth in terms of reality by recalling events or issues, not with honesty, but with their agenda, assuming the worst if you're in a conflict with them. So they're not honest with reality or the truth. They distort it. And as a result, it becomes a distraction within the church. And Paul says, watch out for those kind of people. So the elders in the church, because he's talking to the elders, the the leaders and other denominations have other words, the church board, whatever you want to call them. He said, hey, if they need some direction on how this is done, They've got right before them the model, and that's the Apostle Paul. Because for three years, he ministered alongside them. So if they want to know how to put this in practice, look at how he pastored for those three years. For three years, I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Now, I think there's probably two different ideas that Paul is trying to get across here. One is that he suffered great persecution and difficulties that caused him great pain. But not only was it hard just in and of itself, but it was hard because of where it was coming from. It was his own people. Because Paul was a Jew, and this, this was from religious Jewish leaders who were the prime sources of his persecution. The people that you might assume would be on his side were against him that would be difficult to take. Besides, I'm sure, tears just from the physical abuse and torture that he endured. Another possibility has to do with the sincerity and heart for which Paul ministered amongst them. I mean, it's like you you pour out your heart to someone. You, You teach the word of God in all sincerity, and then they turn their back. Not just on you, but on the Lord. And they reject the word of God. In this way, I think Paul resembles Jesus with the sentiment when Jesus said in Luke 13, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? As hens gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. And then later on in Luke 19, he says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you. He's, he's talking about the, the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place in 70 A.D., Horrible situation for them. Hem you in at every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. So the future does not look bright because you're rejecting the word of God. There's indeed a heaviness that can accompany the joys that come along with being a leader in a church. Yes, there are many victories. Yes, there are many lives changed. Yes, there are many deep friendships that are made. And and honestly, in my experience, I would say 90% or more of ministry is that. And then there's the other 10% that calls you to weep. And what is it about human beings that sometimes that's all you remember, right? And so you need to remember the victories, the friendships, and how God moved. Some go their own way. And it's heartbreaking because you know the path that is ahead of them when they do that. There's going to be unnecessary chastening and difficulty And because you care, it's heartbreaking. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Commend you to God and to the word of his grace. To commend means to take care of or to be put in the protection of someone. In this case, Paul is it's like Paul is saying, now that I'm gone... Let this be your comfort that you have a God to go to and that that God is sufficient for you. Paul has found God to be a good one, a good master, a good king. And he's found these leaders to be capable of performing the task now that they have before them. So he's passing the baton of leadership to those that he's trained for the three years. These leaders are to be directed by their relationship with God, that they were ultimately responsible to God. They weren't just trying to please Paul. Okay, you are primarily responsible to God, so you look to him. In addition, it says they were to follow under the word of God, which is marked by grace. So we could say it, several ways, all of us, I think, stand under the Word of God and not over it, right? We're not to be critics of the Word of God, and many, even Christian leaders, have grown wise in their own eyes, rejecting the plain rendering of the Word of God and making it say something different or just discounting it altogether, But this passage says something interesting. It is only God and his word that builds up one another. What this tells me is that the people in a congregation can be happy and they can be pleased but not sanctified. A church can grow numerically And not be built up. And that happens especially where congregations are operating not under grace, but control and legalism. The word of his grace. Certainly that speaks to the the message of salvation in Christ, which is applicable to everyone regardless of church background, regardless of the sins committed. You know, you meet many people who say, oh, there's no way God could forgive me of this, this, and this. I'm like, dude, you're talking about God here, right? Are, are, are you saying God had never thought of that sin? Because all sin was put upon Christ, including this one. He died for sins past, present, and future, right? Right? Aren't you glad about that? I am. So this invitation is open to all, regardless of church background or having no church background, being an atheist most of your life, to anyone who will humble themselves and admit their sin before God. That, I think, is a lion's share of word of his grace. But I can't help but think that Paul is also pointing these leaders to how they are handling the word of God as well. Because he calls it the word of his grace. There's a a content to it, but there's also a tone, a perhaps even a methodology, a, a way that you present this. You know, Christians have all kinds of disagreements. Did you know that? I know that's news to all of you. Christians have disagreements. Not all disagreements are worthy of division. Can I get an amen? Amen. Not all disagreements are worthy of division, especially where grace is the driving principle. One theologian likened theological disagreement to being in the emergency room and triage being applied to the patients. Triage is a French term that means to sort. It's the idea that emergency personnel have to rate your emergency, have to segregate one group of people and another depending on their emergency. So, for instance, a person who has a heart attack is going to get immediate attention, where a person who has a broken finger Can wait. How many of you have waited hours in an emergency room? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, we all have. So the critical needs take top priority over those that are less urgent. So this writer was extrapolating different levels, three different levels of matters or issues. For instance, you have first-level matters. These are matters that are essential to our faith. And those that who don't hold to these issues, these truths, these foundational principles, you might have difficulty affirming their Christianity. They, you'd have difficulty having them fall under the moniker of being a Christian. For instance, justification by faith, uh, the authority of Scripture, the full deity and humanity of Christ. These would be first-level Issues, okay? Second level issues, according to this person, are those where Christians may disagree. You're still considered Christians, but they might prevent you from fellowshipping within the same church with people. So you have all these different denominations, for instance. So issues like this might be the mode of baptism, or whether you baptize infants, or whether you ordain women, or... Issues like that. Now, call me naive, (laughs) but uh, this guy had me until then. Because I think even mature Christians ought to be able to fellowship with one another in the deepest level, even when you disagree about those issues. Now, I know it doesn't happen all the time. I got to tell you, some of my deepest, closest friends do not agree with me on these issues that I just enunciated. And it's not a big deal. I think that's the way it should be within the body of Christ. Not to say we won't have a position on those things, we would, but it's not like, you know, I can't fellowship with you or go to the same church. But anyway, that's a second level issue that according to this one author, that kind of separates people. Then there are third level issues where Christians, you know, enjoy agreement on doctrinal essentials, but they disagree on interpretations about texts that are are truly not important for our faith. For instance, uh, who are the Nephilim in Genesis 6? And if you don't even know that word, don't worry about it, it doesn't matter, right? Um, Or how do you interpret the husband of one wife as a criteria for elders in 1 Timothy 3? Now, these are issues that our faith is not dependent on those things, on this lower level. So you're probably saying, well, what do these three levels have to do with commending to the word of grace? Well, when one considers the serious encroachment the legalistic arm of Judaism had upon early Christianity, you can appreciate why Paul was trying to accentuate grace. In particular, one way we can look at this is that a legalist, and there are many definitions for it, this is just one, or a religious fundamentalist, and I use that in the pejorative sense, okay? And I know that in early years, fundamentalists, you know, we took, some took pride in believing in the fundamentals of the faith, but I'm not using it as that. I'm using it in the pejorative sense. A religious fundamentalist, a legalist, seeks to make all issues first-level issues. Everything is on the first level. So the full weight of being called a Christian, and having fellowship, you can only have with people who agree on all the issues. Now, granted, the Bible never speaks of first, second, third level issues. It doesn't use that kind of language. I only use those terms simply for illustration purposes and clarity of application, but the Bible does speak in the language of grace. For instance, in the book of Galatians. Christians differed on circumcision. You had Gentiles who did not grow up Jewish. You had Jews who believed that circumcision was necessary in order to be a Christian. And so you had Jew and Gentile that had these differences. There was also a fierce racial difference that we've seen in the, in the book of Acts that just jumps off the page. And then you had lifestyle differences in terms of how they conducted themselves and the practices that they participated in or didn't participate in. All you gotta do is go to a couple different denominational churches, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, they have different codes of conduct depending on that particular Christian subculture, right? So you had all this going on. And Paul is saying, when the legalists Try to rob, particularly these Gentile Christians, of their freedom. They try to make them feel guilty for issues not essential to their faith. He said this, Galatians 2. He said, Some slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Mm. And then I love what Paul says next. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And later, Paul makes this argument. It's like, so you were saved by grace, but now you're living by the law? You are muddying the situation here. He said, when you live with this legalism, you, you are, are you now throwing grace out the window? So Paul's saying, I refuse to allow the legalists to call the shots. I refuse to let them have influence within the church. Gang, <laughs> boy, have I got stories. <laughs> 30 years of being a pastor, and I can think of two seasons I didn't know that this boat would continue floating or not because of having to stand against legalists. And I mean, it was a Donnybrook. But I refuse, and we need to refuse, to allow religious fundamentalists to make us feel guilty, to steal our freedom for things that they have no right to do. Falling in line with legalism does not build you up. It actually stunts your growth. Because instead of going before God, seeking God, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you, pouring over the scripture, which in itself is a wonderful exercise in growing, to have God lead you to a a biblically sound conviction. You know what people who fall into legalism do? they rely upon somebody else to spell that out for them. That is not growth, that is blind compliance. So when when Paul speaks of being built up and having an inheritance, I think what he's doing is saying, so built up are the ways in which it'll benefit you here on the earth and then having an inheritance, it has eternal implications as well. So it helps you now, and it helps you in the future. So you have the benefits of rewards in heaven with the inheritance. So there's great value in being built up and impacting eternity. But notice, it is not because you're not built up by saying, how many sardines you can pack in the can. How many people are at church? Look, we're being built up. No, it's not how many buildings can we build. That's not what he means by being built up. It's not that we reach some monetary goal. Now, nothing wrong with any of those things. That's just not what it means to be built up. The saints are built up and rewarded when they realize their responsibility before God to live under a biblical worldview in all aspects of life, and they do so in grace. That is being sanctified. When God is our master and the Word is our guide, We are set apart for his use, and we are what the Bible calls holy. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to cut to the end of the passage, verses 36 to 38. I'll go back to verses 33 and 35 here in a minute. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. And they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. All the Greek tenses here are imperfect, which would indicate that this goodbye continued on. It was a lengthy goodbye. It was difficult. And their sorrow was especially great because Paul had said, I'm probably not going to see you again. This display and emotions uh, with with, with tears and, and, and kisses It shows the depth of love that they enjoyed with one another. There's a finality about this scene, especially when you consider him journeying to Jerusalem, which he knew meant jail, which eventually put him in Rome where he died. Now, there's an obvious parallel here to Jesus, who the Scripture says, set his face toward Jerusalem. And Jesus knew what it meant for him, that it meant a certain death, not laying in his bed dying of a heart attack, but by crucifixion, torture. And he did it anyway because he was being obedient to the plan that God had for him. One of our values here at CCC is to do the hard thing. We choose biblical obedience, even when it means taking the harder or longer path. Now that runs against the grain. I understand that. But Paul certainly took the harder path. Jesus took the harder path. I'd rather take my cues from those two. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What Paul is saying is that nobody could rightly accuse him of doing this for money. He worked hard. He did his share to support himself whenever he could help others he did. Now, he's not making this a pattern that everyone is to follow in terms of not taking money from churches, and sometimes he did. Because we see in other passages where it says, you know, you're to, uh, some elders are worthy of double honor, which means pay. But that aside, Paul says those that were weak and are beyond helping themselves, they've, they've exhausted all their resources, I'm going to be especially generous towards them. And it's interesting that in the qualifications given for elders in 1 Timothy 3, it says that an elder must not be a lover of money. It doesn't mean he can't have money, but that money doesn't have him. In other words, the main filter he uses in life is not how to get richer, but leveraging what God has provided that person for the kingdom of God. You know, greed is a universal problem and church leaders are not exempt, which is why Paul says, watch yourselves. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Isn't that interesting? Apparel, how you look. I cringed when I heard of one demanding that the worship team have a certain type of designer jean to wear on the stage. I'm like, dude, really? Wow. Well, you know, just by looking at me, I do not subscribe to trying to be cool. All right, <laughs> my my jeans don't have holes. All right, I look like a potato in skinny jeans, and so. I just have to accept my dorkiness, and that's what I think all of us can do is just be who you are. Now, if you're cool by the way you dress and that's the way you are, God bless you, all right? That's not me, all right? So I'll just, you know, we just have to be who you are, authentic, and leave it at that. But I'm not having to, you know, worry about having a certain kind of cool image that you want to project. I just find that especially egregious that that's your line of thinking as opposed to matters of the heart. Paul says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So remember, he's talking to church leaders. He's trying to project, this is what ought to be your lifestyle, how you ought to conduct yourselves. Set the pace for the rest of your congregation in these things. You know, as we find ourselves in the middle of this Christmas season, we are faced again with this annual barrage of consumption. And here we are called as a people to extravagant generosity. Now, I can give you the stats that show the paltry giving of Christians as a whole, but I don't think that's necessarily indicative of every context like our church. Plus, guilt is not a very good motivator, especially long-term, so why even go there? So how about this? 80% of people who give to churches, this is interesting, 80% who give, like on a regular basis, have no credit card debt. Wow. Translated, creating you're to create more margin by getting rid of credit card debt. That would be really helpful. Kind of, you know, loosens the purse strings and you feel like you can be more generous. Here's one. Of families that make their household income is over $75,000, only 1% of those families give 10% of their income to charity. 1%. Yet, 31% of charitable giving happens in December. So here's how I'm going to interpret that information. I'm sure there are many ways to interpret it. Here's how I want to interpret it for our purposes. So for us today, we are in the midst of this Advent conspiracy. And I think it's a great opportunity for all of us to move the needle on those statistics. And I'm sure you don't care about moving the needle on statistics. But what I'm saying is we can be an anomaly to that. Some can think, okay, let me just talk frank. Some can think in terms of thousands in giving to something like this. Others, hundreds. Others, much less. And actually, uh, what is it? We, if we just had 30 people give $600, we'd reach our goal. That's very doable, right? No matter what is given, when it's done sacrificially, God is blessed by that. Amen? So it's it's not about how much each person gives within their own, own level, whatever that is. And God honors it all. Remember the widow's mite? It's all she had. She gave She gave it sacrificially. And God says, great job. So God says, great job to anybody who gives sacrificially. This Advent is a great way to give extravagantly and make an eternal difference. Now, For the last few weeks, you've heard me talk about buying an ultrasound machine for a group of Syrian refugees. Let me give you a little bit more specifics. This organization that is there in Lebanon is called the Cedars Group, all right? It was actually uh, started, uh, one of our missionaries helped to start the group, all right, Keith Rasher. It's a group of four teams comprised of four to 10 people. Each team specializes in a particular area. One uh, provides education. Another, business development. Another, uh, medical health needs. And a fourth team is utilized to provide leadership for the whole project. Now, all the teams have an overarching goal to convey the gospel when they meet these desperate needs that are in this community. Again... If you're unfamiliar with it, three to 400,000 Syrian refugees in this particular valley in Lebanon. Our giving is going to the health team, specifically for the purpose of an ultrasound machine to provide preventative or emergency care to mother and child where needed. Okay, so they're wanting the child to survive and grow. They're wanting the mother to survive and grow. And sometimes you realize a problem, it it requires specific attention, even while the mother is pregnant. So the ultrasound helps to discover those things so you can give each a fighting chance. My challenge to all of us is to consider increasing the chances of these Syrian refugees having healthy births by helping us purchase this portable ultrasound machine. It's over 18 grand. It is, it is I know, a, lo- a lot of money for this, but through God's help, we can do that. Now, we've just scratched the surface so far. We're not even a quarter of the way there. So these next two or three weeks, uh, it's got to happen, right? So I'm asking for us to step forward in a big way. I want you to check this out. Do this through a political lens, through the issue of immigration. Look at this as human beings who are suffering at its most basic level. That is what is taking place. It breaks my heart to see the inhumanity towards these fellow human beings. We can make a big difference with this. So it's more blessed to give than to receive. You do more good to others and yourself when you give extravagantly. God bless you.